Guys, exciting news before we start the show. We're launching our very own Patreon. Now, this is your chance to support Spy Hards and gain access to our patron-exclusive Agents in the Field series, where we decode the work of famous spy actors in their non-spy roles, including films like The Rock with Sean Connery and The Sting. Not to mention, every month we'll be dropping exclusive audio commentaries to your favourite spy films. So hop on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash spyhards and join the agency. But Cam, hit the music. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I don't know if you know this or not, but our guest this week, well, he responded to a questionnaire that we sent out and it indicated that he might be amenable for programming in the Spy Hards podcast um but i should say our guest is actually the uh, a film critic for forbes he is scott mendelson scott welcome to the show hi thank you very much for having me it's been a, it's a pleasure it's a real honor to have you i've actually been reading your work for years i um i think i first came across you when you guested on the slash film cast now the film cast back in the day and one thing i've always appreciated about your work is that and I hope this doesn't sound like a backhanded compliment, because I mean it sincerely, is that a lot of film critics I find in the online world, they kind of share a similar vernacular. You get the same kind of vibe off a lot of the reviews. And your stuff always really stood out to me and had its own unique voice. And I've really appreciated following it all these years. I appreciate you saying that, and thank you. And it's, it's funny, because as long as I've been doing this, I often run into people that first found me when I guessed it on Dave Chen's iPhone podcast in April of 2011 to Trash Green 4. <laughs> and yeah, the weird thing is like there's there's a generation just under mine that was just young enough to see that film when they were a teenager and they're sort of now arguing that Scream 4 is good actually um, I don't get that and I do enjoy I do enjoy being the grouchy grandpa about that having said that I do wonder if the generation that grew up thinking Scream 4 was actually good is going to help Scream 5 or Scream when it opens theatrically in January of next year. Oh, but that was 10 years ago. 10 years, wow. Has the discourse turned around on Scream 3 now as well? Because, good lord. No, no, that's still, that's still pure garbage. Good, good, okay. I mean, and as someone who does not like Scream 4, it's better than Scream 3. Yeah, yeah. It's if for no other reason than it's not, you know, unfortunately handicapped by the culture of the moment without getting too navel-gazy here. It was trying to make a teen-oriented slasher film right after the Columbine Massacre. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's so you, you end up with this weird film that's all about grown-ups running around Hollywood. There's almost no on-screen gore, um, and then it retroactively turns the entire saga into this weird, convoluted, you know, deep, dark secret of your family. Ha ha ha! Which was so awful they kept copying it for one franchise after another for the next ten years. Um, Spectre, Rise of Skywalker, yada yada. yada. <laughs> 
as a man who you know ran out screaming of the mummy, I really can't handle horror films, so I don't think I've ever seen a scream. Wow, you should watch the original. Uh, it's pretty scream great. Scream three is so bad that it's not very scary. Mm, that's that true. Be a good one to start with. Maybe that's how I get into it. I'll be wearing the ghost face in no time. That was the old joke when I was growing up: is that you know, if you show your kid Jaws and they're scared to go in the water, then solve that problem by showing them Jaws two, three, and four. <laughs> Keep uh keep keep Jaws four in mind. We may have a touch back on that film a little bit later in the episode. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's news to me. Yeah. Mm, okay. I'm looking forward to hearing that. But uh, for for me, Scott, you know, there's two Scots here. We'll have to address that at some point. But um, in terms of spy films, we're obviously tackling one today. But you know, what are some of your favorites? Um, in terms of like real world spy craft, uh, you know, I'm actually a big fan of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The adaptation that came out in 2000, God, 10 years ago, Jesus. Uh, in 2011, uh, it was Gar- a Gary Oldman vehicle. Um, and I do like a lot of the spy films that came out in the 90s. You know, the obvious, you know, big blockbuster ones, Gold, Gold, uh, Golden Eye, Mission Impossible. They kind of dabbled with the, okay, well, the Cold War's over. What was all this for? What was all this for? What was the point of all this, you know, the lost lives, the, you know, the lifetime of careers of the collective and everything else for, for what? You know, exchanging secrets with, you know, against an adversary that's now our buddy now. And ironically, I would say, in a weird ahead-of-its-time way, the first major movie to deal with that was not a spy film, but Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, um, which which is one of, maybe one of the reasons why it's my favorite Star Trek film. But it you know, obviously deals with the whole... You know, a, a character like Captain Kirk spent its life, you know, looking at the Klingons as an enemy, and now they're our buddies. We're like, okay, what was all that for? Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, I, I like all, most of the Mission Impossible films. I'm the weirdo that actually likes two better than three. Oh, interesting. Uh, three for me is too much of a what if Alias was a movie, but not in a good way. Um... Philip Seymour Hoffman is terrific. Tom Cruise gives it his all. Yada yada yada. It just—it's one of those movies that that for me is mired in cliche. And even worse, it seems to think it's the first movie ever to do those cliches. Um, well, Mission Impossible Two—you could say a lot. First of all, I, I think it's John Woo spoofing himself, which I find very entertaining. I mean, it's certainly the most—you know—it's the last time he really made that kind of. Um, at least for a very long time, give or take Manhunt. Um, and it, 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 even then, compared to the, the gritty uh, gladiator in that summer and the it's a, you know, the real world comic book melodrama of X Men, uh, Mission Impossible 2 stood out as this gloriously romantic, over the top, larger than life movie movie um, that I found very appealing now and then. Um, and obviously, if I may generalize, so did people from India. Because if you watch modern Indian action pictures, which I've, I've tried to catch up with a few here and there, they seem all seem very inspired by John Woo's Mission Impossible 2. But anyway, so yeah, real world spy, spy came in the cold. Uh, fantasy spy, probably Goldeneye, which is still my favorite Bond flick. Oh, interesting. And I had a question for you related to Bond. You're, you do a lot of box office analysis. I've always found your analysis of box office fascinating as someone who has been tracking that myself since I was about 12 years old or 13. 
What is it like right now? You know, No Time to Die has opened fairly recently. What is it like right now during a pandemic to cover box office? It must be bizarre. Um, yes and no. For me, one of the most challenging aspects right now is beating back what I would consider simplistic and often incorrect broader narratives that take shape, you know, in the industry overall. Like, you know, for example, you know, a lot of the big movies that were guaranteed to be big did not open this summer, intentionally so, with the exception of maybe F9, Quiet Place 2, and then Black Widow. But even that one, you know, was released this summer because they want to, you know, mess up the release of Hawkeye and Disney Plus hmm. this year. Um, so you, you had a lot of, you know, hand-wringing over the summer about, you know, is theatrical doomed? What the movies that, you know, I'm sorry, the fate of theatrical is not going to be decided by a summer dominated by Space Jam 2, Snake Eyes, and the Suicide Squad. All due respect. Um, and, you know, it's, it's another, you know, when, when the Bond film came out, it was about $55 million, a little lower than Oak. We were all sort of hoping for 60, but it's, it's, again, you see a lot of, you know, Bond is no longer relevant. Bond is, you know, the franchise is doomed. They need to spice it up. It's like, first of all, every Bond movie for the last 26 years has been implicitly, is James Bond still relevant? Hmm. And since they've all done very well, relatively speaking, the answer is always yes. Um, and while I like the Brosnan films more or less, and I like some of the great films, I do hope they kind of get away from that over, you know, whatever comes next. Because, you know, it's been 25 years of apologizing for yourself. But as far as No Time to Die, it's a little soft domestically. It's going to top out about 155, maybe 160, assuming it doesn't really leg out. Um, but overseas, it's doing very well. It's already done 447 million worldwide. Uh, I don't think it's going to make a gajillion dollars in China, just because I mean, even Spectre only made $83 million out of a whopping 881 worldwide in late 2015. But, you know, especially by COVID standards, it's going to be the first or second, give or take F9, biggest global grossing Hollywood film of the last two years. And while you could argue that's lower than, you know, Bond, at least in the Skyfall Spectre era, it's great on a COVID curve, and it's still going to end up being the third biggest Bond film ever. So it's doing fine. I wish I liked the movie better, but whatever. I mean, that's the nice thing about Bond. You was doing a clean slate. <laughs> it's true. Is there a misunderstanding, do you think, between the popularity of Bond domestically versus internationally? I think so, because I think Skyfall so ridiculously overperformed in 2012 that it sort of created this impression that, oh, now Bond is as big in North America as a Bond. And that has not been the case. That's never been the case. And by never, I mean, you know, in the 1970s, when you had, you know, the Roger Moore movies that were, you know, at best in the top ten in a good year. Um, and then in the 80s, you had the Roger Moore slash Timothy Dalton films that were doing relatively well, but were still competing with Indiana Jones, Rambo First Blood Part Two, Die Hard, Robocop, um, and then eventually, you know, Batman. And then you had this, this six-year chunk without a Bond movie, and that was when we really started to see a lot of big, blustery Hollywood action pictures. So when the Pierce Brosnan films came back, they were not remotely the only game in town. And that's why I think the Brosnan franchise, while commercially, you know, it's exceptionally successful by any rational standard, you know, those, those runs are somewhat underrated because in the cultural zeitgeist, 
they were just one of many big budget present tense Hollywood action adventure pictures. Uh, you know, against the likes of Terminator 2 and Lethal Weapon 3 and, you know, True Lies and the you know, Face Off, etc., etc. Um, but I, I also think, you know, without getting on a, well, I'm already on a tangent, but without getting on too much of a tangent, the weird thing about the Bond series is that it's always sort of chased whatever popular trends were going on at any given time. It's not a secret. Yep. You know, uh, The Man the Golden Gun was Kung Fu, Live and Let Die was Black Exploitation. License to Kill was Miami Vice slash Evil Weapon. Quantum of Solace was Jason Statham slash Bourne. You know, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think is fascinating is that the Bond series has mostly st stood still in terms of what it was. I mean, yes, you know, it's a little more progressive. And yes, it's approximating this genre or that genre. But the James Bond series has basically been what it's always been, you know, for better or worse. But the industry, in the, you know, especially in the last 10 years, has become so rooted in fantasy, nostalgic, four-quadrant, sexless, harmless PG-13 fantasy action-adventure films, oh yes, often involving superheroes, wizards, and robots, that by default the James Bond series has kind of reasserted itself as not just a blockbuster, but a prestigious, mm -hmm. you know, big blockbuster for cool grown-ups that actually have excess spending money. Right. Um, so it's it's not that Bond has gotten bigger; it's that the its competition is so radically changed that Bond has found itself sort of the last game in town for those particular kinds of white collar action thrills. Well, I think what I'll do at this point is is maybe bring us onto what we're talking about this week. And 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 you know, Scott, you said you like your fantasy spy films, but also your more serious spy films. Well, let's talk about a film that isn't really either of those things. Cam. Yes, we are going to talk this week about 1974's The Parallax View, directed by Alan J. Pakula. Now, I hadn't seen this film before. This was a fresh watch for me. Cam, was it the same for you? No, I watched this one a handful of years ago. Um, it was in a unemployed period of my life, post-journalism school, and I was sort of in a funk. And so I was watching something like, you know, three movies a night sort of thing. And I, this was one of them. So I enjoyed it a lot when I saw it, but it was also happening in a blitz of movies. So my memory wasn't the strongest, but I did enjoy it the first time. You were in a bit of a funk. Were you sending off letters to the uh, Parallax Corporation? <laughs> no, I was praying that they would recruit me so I would have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about you, Scott? I mean, before, what, before revisiting it for this podcast, have you seen it before? Did you have any thoughts on it back then? I had seen it once growing up, just you know, when I was a kid, and I was you know, making it. You know, again, there was a lot. You know, when I was a kid, there was a lot less content to keep up with. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you had cable TV, and you had network TV, and you had a video store, you had premium channels, but there was still plenty of time to catch up with the new stuff and sample old stuff. And I think, you know, without getting you know on another tangent, I think that's a big reason why. You know, you're always seeing people my age complaining about kids these days and they're not aware of their film history, blah, blah, blah. First of all, there's twice as much many old movies when, you know, when, now that I'm 40 than there was when I was 20, because 20 years later, you know, Pulp Fiction is now an old movie. When I was a 14-year-old, that was blazingly new. Um, I mean, you know, it's, 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 you know, The Mummy is now older than Raiders of the Lost Ark was when The Mummy came out, for example. 
you know, Independence Day is now older than Star Wars, than Return of the Jedi was when Independence Day came out, and so forth. But no, I, I saw it, you know, I, I actually first heard about it on a movie-a-day calendar, you know, about each calendar, that a math teacher had gotten me as a gift, and it just had an interesting log line. Oh, you know, this reporter witnesses an assassination, and, and sometime later, the people that were seemingly witnesses start being bumped off one by one. And I think from that log line, I expected a more conventional action-adventure picture. Um, where he's you know trying to find these witnesses and they're you know just getting killed right when he gets there and there's action car chases fist fights and obviously it's not quite that I mean the film does have its share of action and violence especially by the you know comparatively muted standards of the 1970s you know this was before First Blood before Die Hard etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, most action films of that era other than the James Bond films of course and that's where they stood out they were basically you know, crime procedural slash dramas with maybe a big car chase in the second act and a big shootout in the third. Um, and that's basically what this film is. It is a more button-down, character-driven mystery thriller. And the gimmick, of course, is that the protagonist realizes that he himself is getting, you know, basically drawn deeper and deeper into this web of conspiracy while also setting himself up as a full guy the next big murder that's being planned. I mean, I assume if you're listening to a podcast this movie, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> if for some reason you have not seen the film, it's on Amazon Prime right now. You don't even have to pay four bucks to rent it. Uh, but yeah, so I saw it as a kid, and then I watched it on a whim a few months ago, and I don't even remember why. You know what it was? I was catching up on old Alan Bacala and uh, Sidney Lamette pictures. Um, you know, this was you know early 2021. And there was obviously no new theatrical product to be viewed, and I was getting really tired of the Netflix originals and or the straight to VOD, you know, bargain basement set in a haunted house. It's all about trauma horror flicks. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, let me catch up with and or revisit some old school studio programmers that either I haven't seen or that I'd like to watch again. Um, and that was one of them. I was like, what, yeah, what are you talking about? Chris Hemsworth's extraction was gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the better ones. Uh, I mean, there's a reason that film is their biggest, you know, most watched original picture. You know, warts and all, it's one of the few Netflix originals that you know isn't acquired or isn't from someone like Spike Lee that knows what they're doing. Mm. That feels like a, a real. I would see this in a theater and not feel ripped off kind of movie. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. For those who have seen the film, you know that you'll know. But for those maybe who haven't, but are just listening to the podcast, what we'll do is I'll read out the Letterbox.com synopsis to maybe give you a little taste of the film. The Parallax View, as American as apple pie, <laughs> an ambitious reporter investigating a senator's assassination realizes witnesses to the shooting are systematically dying and discovers a multi-million dollar corporation which serves as a front for the recruitment of political assassins. Not bad. Yeah, that's a, a, a bit wordy, but not too bad. Not the worst I've read. The tagline is uh, curious, but sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that brainwashing bit leads into that, maybe. Mm. The the American Pie thing. Sure. But um, Cam... I've always said you look like a flasher. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> so why don't you flash some info about how this film was made? Yes. So this is based on a 1970 novel by Lawrence Singer, who was an American writer, and it served with the OSS when he was younger. And he worked a lot of those sort of memories into his work. And he was very much inspired by the Warren Commission investigation of the JFK assassination when he wrote this story. 
and it was picked up. Um, director Alan J. Pakula was going to direct it. He was a originally a producer who'd worked on films like um, Fear Strikes Out in 57 before moving into things like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Stalking Moon. And his first directorial film was in 1969, The Sterile Cuckoo, starring Liza Minnelli. And he also then went on to do Clute with Jane Fonda, which won her the Oscar for Best Actress. And that was sort of the first part in his unofficial Paranoia trilogy of the 70s. This film is number two in the line. And number three was All the President's Men. And so he attached himself to this. And this would mark Warren Beatty's return to the screen after two years off. He'd been raising money and, and campaigning for Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern, who ultimately lost to Nixon in 1972. So it was sort of a big deal to have Warren Beatty coming back. He was looking to do shampoo first up, but just because of scheduling, that wasn't going to be the case. So he decided to sign on for this one. And they brought in writer Lorenzo Semple Jr., who we've talked about in the past, um, to write this thing. He had written a lot of TV. He had helped create the Batman series starring Adam West. And in his draft, all the victims had been present on the grassy knoll during the JFK assassination. So there was some drastic rewriting going on here. But the problem was there was a WGA strike looming. And so he bailed out and they brought in writer David Giler who was also mostly a TV guy. He had done an adaptation of Myra Breckenridge um, in the 1970s. And he would go on to be a producer on the Alien franchise. So he's a pretty established guy. And he did a bunch of quick rewrites before the strike. And they also brought in uh, Robert Town, who did uncredited rewrites. But the strike happened, and so they were kind of stuck. And uh, I think as uh, you know, Scott Mendelson, you can attest, writer's strikes uh, play havoc with productions. Yes, they do. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, not remembering that when I've seen this film, I'm kind of shocked it works as well as it does. Yeah. I would argue it's a pretty lean picture. Well, I wonder if that's kind of why it's lean, because they went into production without a completed script, and dialogue was often worked out with Pacula and his actors a little as a day before shooting. So Pacula was doing constant rewriting, and often um, Warren Beatty and, co and actor Hume Cronin were also writing on the film. And so ultimately, it was drastically different from the book. They added the opening sequence. They turned Frady from a cop to a reporter. They did consider also making him a baseball player. So they really cycled through some ideas there. <laughs> and... Um, the movie was also shot while Watergate hearings were taking place, and the cast and crew would often gather in Warren Beatty's um, trailer to watch news footage going on at the time. So we'll talk about the 70s vibe of this movie, but it was very much tying into the feelings at the time while they were even shooting the movie. As for the box office of this movie, I'm kind of embarrassed to have Scott Mendelson here and say that the box office for this one is very much obscured and very difficult to track down, whereas that is not the case more often than not. It's actually quite easy. For some reason, maybe it's a conspiracy, the box office for Parallax View is very difficult to find. They do note that it was a box office failure, though. That's the one thing I found time and time and time again, that it was a failure. So um, the top three for the year, number one was Blazing Saddles, number two was The Towering Inferno, and number three was Young Frankenstein, so you have a Mel Brooks sandwich in 1974. And I think when you look at those three movies, you get a sense of maybe why the Parallax view wasn't the home run they 
perhaps hoped it could be. <laughs> Maybe a little less fun. Even by 70s standards, it's a downer of a movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I don't necessarily play into the notion that when things are bad, people just want escapism. I mean, if anything, to a certain, you know, there's a reason horror films did so well this year, despite you know, nonfiction being kind of terrifying. Um, having said that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a very low-key film. It is rooted in character over spectacle. It has an unhappy ending. Um, and the reviews were decent without being superlative. I mean, it's not like it was in the running for the Oscars, like, you know, All the President's Men, or it was considered a modern classic, like Three Days of the Condor. Uh, having said that, over the years, I would say, not even so much because of its quality, but because of how almost comedically paranoid and pessimistic it is, it has kind of come to represent one of the definitive conspiracy major, you know, in terms of major studio Hollywood, the bigger, you know, definitive conspiracy thrillers of its time. Um, because it's so primal in the, you know, the real story isn't true. No one will give you the real story. The people that want to, you know, that want to keep the truth quiet are trying to kill you and others. And hey, they pulled it off at the end. Good for them. Because nobody can stop the man. <laughs> and, you know, as sort of an ice, you know, an ice, uh, icing on the tragedy cake, you end up being, you know, implicated in, in the, uh, in the narrative that disputes that conspiracy in the first place. Uh, it's probably something I'll get into in a minute when we get to the review, but just in terms of it being put together, talking about um, the grassy knoll, I, being a Brit, all of this stuff flies very far over my head. So I think there was bits in this maybe I didn't get as well as some Americans and North Americans might. I think that might play into my thoughts later. But that's just interesting that it was sort of had a genesis there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually later, but... That will be interesting to delve into, just the difference in terms of geography as to where you live and how you approach a movie like this. Um, I had just a couple other notes. Uh, this year, number 21 at the box office was The Man with the Golden Gun, which we referenced earlier. And the 21. one... Yeah, 21. Yeah, it was not a big hit, Man with the Golden Gun. One of the few that actually arguably bombed, which is why The Spy Who Loved Me being as popular as it was basically saved the franchise. Yep. And um, one thing just to note that I found was, while I couldn't find a box office number for the Parallax View, it did seem to be lumped together with the conversation a lot in terms of performance. And the conversation, which is the uh, Francis Ford Coppola film with Gene Hackman, which we'll cover sometime down the road, made about $4 million. So I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine Parallax View in that sort of ballpark. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And both, where would that put it if it made four million? Where would it land on the year? In nineteen seventy-four, um, ugh. down in the thirties or forties. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. That's another picture that you know. Obviously, I like the conversation as much as everybody else does, but it is a button-down, action light, almost violence-free character study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you if you want the action packed sequel, you have to watch Enemy of the State. That's right. Oh. <laughs> and just to close this out, I'll mention, you know, Pacula would come back a couple years later after the box office disappointment of this movie and make All the President's Men, which would prove one of the most important movies of the nineteen seventies. And also writer Lorenzo Semple Jr. would go on to write Three Days of the Condor, which is where we covered him the first time, as well as Never Say Never Again, the Sean Connery return to Bond from 1983 that 
Uh, we'll talk about it in the future. <laughs> the best Connery <laughs> film ever made. Well, it really was ahead of its time in terms of the, is this iconic action hero over the hill and passes pride and no longer culturally relevant. Um, also, it's a great Johnny English prequel. <laughs> yeah, that does make sense, actually. Yeah. <laughs> also, Maybe we'll treat it like that. When we do Johnny English, we'll do, we'll do that as the lead-in. Also, yes. not the worst Connery toupee, so we can say that. No. I mean, we, we haven't covered, we've only covered uh, You Only Live Twice at this point, but I, at some point we'll have to discuss the three Sean Connery retired Bond films, where he, where he doesn't want to do it anymore, and which is the best of his retirement films. Yeah. Oh, no. Diamond. Well, yeah, the best. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you like yeah, it better see? than You Only Live Twice? That's fair. I, mm, I, I just like, you know, riding horses off of cliffs. I'm really into that. <laughs> Scott really appreciates Never Say Never, so, you know. I, I will say this. Diamonds Are Diamonds Are Forever is my pick as the worst 007 film. Wow. And I actually watched them all, like, in a month in April 2020, right when the lockdown started, just on a whim with my wife and I. And not only was Diamonds worst, it was worse by, like, a pretty healthy margin, I would argue, the point where I don't think I'll ever watch this again unless I'm watching them all. Are you including Casino Royale 67 and Never Say Never Again on this list of worst? No, I, I don't generally include that when I... Just because I mean, it's a spoof. I mean, it's its own mm. weird little thing. I, mean, I wouldn't include Austin Powers either. <laughs> um, to be fair. You know, or you know, in like Flint or something. Mm. Um, but no, that's fair. I, I, I always have to caveat that when I do these you know, James Bond comparisons. Like, this, does, this does count Never Say Never Again. does not count Casino Royale. <laughs> There's got to be a line somewhere. Anyway, you were saying. Cam, do you have any more? Nope, that wraps me up for Behind the Scenes on Parallax View. Well, gents, I suggest we hop on the uh, miniature railway and uh, <laughs> talk about our thoughts on the film. Uh, Scott, you're our guest. You've revisited it for the podcast. What do you think now, X amount of years later? Well, I think on, you know, on its own, it's a very good, compelling, engrossing picture. Warren Beatty gives another frankly underrated by virtue of his matinee idol status, star performance. I mean, the, 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 he's one of those actors that, you know, he gave star performances, he gave prestige performances, and I would argue, you know, he was all very good in the mainstream stuff as opposed to something like Reds, which is one of the best movies in the 80s, but that's another conversation. And it's, you know, it's, you know, the fact that he went from raising money to prevent Richard Nixon's re-election to making a movie like this is interesting. I don't know if it's weird, I don't know if it's ironic, but it seems appropriate. Especially when, you know, little did we know that the you know, the Watergate hearings, which eventually would force Nixon from office, you know, because of a conspiracy, obviously a less murderous one to my knowledge, would come about while the film was being made. Um, but absent that context, it really works as sort of, as you noted, I mean, it went from a literal fictionalization of the JFK assassination to a more metaphorical fictionalization of the JFK assassination, where it's more about, you know, the, the, the for a lot of people, especially those who had a bit more faith in the government, the murder of John F. Kennedy and the accusations of conspiracy were sort of a watershed moment in terms of the idea that not only could the government not be trusted, but powerful men could be taken down by this conspiracy, not just, you know, some random nobody could be tossed in a van and vanished forever. Um, you know, they can get Kennedy, they can get anybody. Um, 
And yeah, I, I like a lot of kids. I grew up assuming there was some big conspiracy about the JFK assassination. I loved all their stories of JFK. Even though even when I was a kid, I assumed it was at least somewhat fictionalized. Um, you know, even though, even though I was a kid, I was like, you know, this scene seems too much like a good piece of, you know, a good movie scene. It's probably fictionalized. Um, and that's fine. My JFK is actually sort of my litmus test in terms of, is this based on a true story movie good enough to be as good as it would have been if it was completely fiction? The answer is yes. I don't care if they make stuff up. The answer is no. Then, you know, I take issue with fabrications and fictionalizations. Um, if it's basing its impact on, look at this wonderful or terrible thing that actually happened in real life, and that thing didn't actually happen in real life, that's a problem from, a, you know, from my personal critical perspective. Otherwise, you know, it's a movie. You know, I'm not using it for a book report. I'm not using it to cheat on a test. It's not a documentary, whatever. But it, you know, this is a film that uses its violence very selectively so that it does sting when, when violence is done and lives are lost. Um, it was, it's still at that point in Hollywood where the mere loss of life was itself horrific in itself, cause for emotional impact. Um, and it is, and again, even compared to something like Three Days of the Condor, Marathon Man, it's a button-down movie. It's a small-scale, you know, again, I wouldn't call it realistic for any number of reasons, <laughs> but it feels real Yeah. in a way that something like, you know, I love Marathon Man, but that feels more like a James Bond movie than Spy the Kingdom of the Cold. Well, this film does really play like if there really was a, you know, a, a, you know, an Illuminati that was pulling all the strings and killing anyone that got in their way and, you know, moving the world around like private chess pieces, this is probably how it would operate. Mostly in the shadows, in a very mundane, almost boring fashion, with very unglamorous murders, but, you know, only killing somebody when you absolutely had to, because otherwise you attract attention. Um, and in a way that, you know, didn't just dissuade people from trying to figure out the truth, but use those people to further their own goals. So they have their cake and eat it too. And in a markedly efficient way. So, it, you know, when I was growing up and even now in comparison, the parallax view always felt to me like a definitive, you know, conspiracy, Hollywood conspiracy thriller. Both because of what it was about and how it was about. Yeah, I mean, this film uh, is is quite clinical in how it kills people, and and you could you could argue it's almost kind of boring in that sense. Yes, you know? some people don't like that sort of the spy films where they just talk about paperwork and and they sit around staring through windows and things like that. And that can really people can really not like that and find it unapproachable. Um, I won't talk about my thoughts yet, but you know, Cam, you've revisited it since you know you spent a few months sitting on the sofa in your underwear drinking beer. Clearly, um, yeah. How how are you feeling on your second visit? I really enjoyed watching this last night, and I think I got a better read on it, honestly, the second time that I did back when I was just bulldozing through handfuls of movies um, one summer. Uh, and that is that, like, just the mood of this movie really draws you in, but it's a mood that's very aloof and very alienating. It's not, you know, even Three Days of the Condor, there's some excitement there. You're watching a fight with, like, a dude posing as a mailman, and you get really brought into the gritty action of the moment. Whereas here... All of the action really holds you at arm's length and makes you an observer and makes you feel somewhat 
uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable movie in a lot of places. You even struggle to connect to the Warren Beatty character. And I think that's by design. He feels kind of aloof. And so that as you know, you have this sort of sense of paranoia carrying you through this movie, you always feel like something's just a little bit off. And I talked recently about the movie The Card Counter, which I was a big fan of, the Paul Schrader film. And that's a movie that also just like places you in a place where it just, the mood of that movie, the chilly kind of aloof vibe of it really carries through in a way that's so effective. And I mean, this movie, we'll talk about set pieces here because this movie has some major set pieces and each one of them is just incredibly well staged, but in a way that I can totally see say, younger viewers or people looking to just have a good time watching a spy movie or a conspiracy movie, they would find it very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll probably throw my uh, my hat into the ring at this point now because this was my first time and I am known on this podcast as the guy that likes his Mission Impossible 2s. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to this, I, I find the Ipcris file to be somewhat unapproachable and boring. I'm sorry if it's <laughs> one of the best spy films to some people. It's just not for me. Um and I think this film a little bit strays down that that road. I find it's such a it's a very suspenseful film. You know, you are on the edge of your seat at times. I mean, we'll talk about the airplane scene at some point, but uh, yeah, that is you're you're like sweating watching this film. And I don't know if I want to go through that experience while watching a film. Um, I don't like like cringe comedy, for instance. It's sure. like the version, but I I can't stand cringe comedy. Because I don't like feeling that. I don't want to sit there and go, Ugh. I'd rather just watch something that makes me laugh. And this is constantly putting you on the back foot, not telling you everything. And, and as Cam said, keeping you at arm's length. And I, I think I, I enjoyed bits of this film. Like there's pieces and the moments and scenes and the score are all great. As a complete unit, I'm, I'm not sure it was quite for me. I felt like it um, just didn't embrace me. It has a real um, ability to sort of inspire anxiety in the viewer. And that is a very specific vibe that I think a lot of people would sit through and be like, that's not the reason I want to sit through a movie. Well, and also, and, and I know you've, you've entered this as well, Warren Beatty's character is, is he's very self-sabotaging. And that, you know, on one hand, the conspiracy is real, yada, yada, yada. But you're also thinking, could he have maybe avoided some of these negative consequences if he wasn't less of a schmuck? Because he's, 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 you know, again, he's a classic Hollywood, you know, you know, the system, you know, I'm against the system even to the, to such an extent that it helps the system. You know, he's such a rebel. He's such a counterculture figure. Uh, you know, he's so me against the man that he acts in a way that helps the man. And, uh, so even that, you know, there's a certain cringe factor because he's such a self-defeating, not an idiot. He's obviously a very intelligent, thoughtful guy. But he's his own worst enemy more often than not. I don't know. I'd, I'd kind of argue against that. I, I think he's a bit of a dope. <laughs> okay. That's, I was trying to be fair, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it, well, at what point? Because I watched this film twice. I, I, you know, notoriously watch every film that we cover twice. And I, on my second viewing, I was sitting down going, at some point, the Parallax Corporation must have figured out that he was a double agent, and we're just playing him as a fool. So. If he can figure that, they can figure that out. Why can't he figure that out? And he basically sets himself up to, uh, you know, with, yeah. you know, spoiler, he dies at the end. He gets killed yeah. by the Parallax Corporation because he's an idiot or dope. Um, and 
I don't know. I, I, I'm sure he's an intelligent reporter. <laughs> As William Daniel said, you're like you're a, you're a two bit, you know, third rate reporter. No one knows you from you know Hicksville, Seattle, or whatever. No one knows your name, so why would we care? So he's, I don't think he's that good of a reporter. So I think he set himself up to fail from the start, and so that's another reason why I just can't get behind him. I wonder though if it's like he has the skills, but he's a very arrogant character. You see that yes. right early on. You have the moment where he just shows up at the Space Needle and we just see, you know, the character, you know, his his ex, like looks at him and just gives him this sort of dead stare. And you just, right there, that stare tells you all you need to know about this guy and that he's, you know, not the most reliable of individuals, probably not the best guy. And you see through Hume Cronin, you know, his boss, that he, what does he call him? Like something like uh, a creative, ir- creatively irresponsible. Yes. He uses that term. And it's like he's someone who probably is very smart, but is arrogant and maybe doesn't stop to consider the ramifications of what he's doing. That that was more my read. No, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, it's 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 that certainly is a Hollywood archetype. I mean, you know, that's Eddie Brock in the first edit movie. Where <laughs> yeah. you know, he's clearly a skilled journalist, but he's also kind of an idiot. That just takes no stock in, you know maybe accusing a big conglomerate business guy of conspiracy and murder with no evidence is a bad idea. Uh, but anyway, that's why he's a loser. But yeah, I, I do... Yes, there's creative comedy, but that's still comedy. So there's this weird, skewed entertainment value of watching this this, care, this person get way over his head while not realizing until almost the end that, you know, the, you know he's been the butt of the joke almost the entire time. I, I suppose what I, I will point out some of the bits I did like, and maybe I'll throw out to everyone as well. But And I said about the plane scene earlier, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, you know, I just... One of the things I loved about this film is this slow descent into madness that it seems to follow. You know, you've got the brainwashing sequence. You've got the, 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 those weird judges on either end of the film. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I'm slowly going crazy watching this film, and I'm, I'm sure Warren Beatty's meant to feel the same. Um, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that it didn't um, it didn't hand everything to you. You did have to try and search for the answer within the film. It was not an easy thing to read. No, and it has, like, you know, you mentioned the bookends of the, uh, the commission there saying there's no signs of conspiracy. It just has these really beautiful tableaus that are always cloaked in darkness, and, um, you know, you have those as well as him sitting in the chair in the brainwashing section, which looks visually somewhat similar to the opening and closing. And I find it very interesting about this movie that it's a character who's always trying to see, you know, search into the darkness, but is killed running into the light at the end. Ooh. And just like little touches like that really drew me in. It's someone who is always trying to peer into these mysterious corners, but... That's where the character journey really interests me because he is someone who's just so almost remote as a character. He's tough to get a read on. That's why I think we're disagreeing about the character because I think so much is what you bring to it. So it's sort of more of why I said it was a mood piece where you can kind of just take the vibe. You can follow the story. I think the story is incredibly simple to follow. Yeah, there's some conspiracy stuff, but it's pretty clean, pretty cleanly set up. Mm -hmm. And it's all about reading into the ambiguities of each section. Well, I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys. Uh, Scott, what about you? What something else that you liked about this film? Uh, well, I like the visuals. I do. And again, I, I wonder, just you know, picking this up as I go along right now, because it's something that really happened to me. But, you know, I mentioned about how the film 
feels like how you, know, you would think a giant conspiracy would go. And that extends the visuals, where you have the the commission that basically you know, is pitch black room with shadowy figures offering grave pronouncements from a, a top, um, and you know being strapped to a chair and being you know subjected to weird images. And yeah, this was after Clockwork Orange, so I don't think they made that the wheel or anything. But I do wonder how much this film popularized that kind of imagery. Um, and, you know, I'm, again, I'm doing a dangerous thing. I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, were there any other mainstream films of this nature that had that kind of imagery beforehand? The brainwashing, the only things I thought of and I wrote down was Clockwork Orange and the Ipcris file. Yeah. Um, and that's all I had, really. Uh, I'm sure there's been more since, though. I mean, there was such a craze for, like, brainwashing stuff in 1960s spy films, so it's possible. But just the way this one's presented, like, kind of the horror of it felt, mm. I mean, more so Clockwork Orange. But I don't know that I've seen as many that seemed as unsettling. Because even The Ipcris File, it's much more hallucinogenic. Yes. Like, it's crazy imagery. This is very, it's very op oppressive. Yeah. You know, the, the, the net is closing mm. in throughout the entire picture. Um, and, you know, not only is our character doomed, but any hope of exposing this diabolical corporate, you know, this diabolical entity is going to be extinguished once again, and then the cycle continues accordingly and accordingly. Uh, which, of course, you know, leads you to wonder to what extent, you know, for example, the, the guy that flies off the roof in the opening scene, another guy that, you know, flew too close to the sun, shall hmm. we say. Which goes to what you were talking about about running toward the light. He's you know flying too close to the sea. Like that. Um, <laughs> I do like his, I like his interactions with his boss, who you know there's a mutual respect, but you know it's it's it it slowly becomes because it has to be a, a tough love relationship, where eventually he has to you know his boss to say, look, I like you, I respect you, but at some point I gotta draw a line. You know, I I cannot Tom. You know, to quote Tommy Jones, I cannot tolerate your Tom Fullery. <laughs> I think I got that wrong. We get the idea. I think it was sanction sanction your buffoonery, wasn't it? Thank you. I yeah. got that wrong. Fifteen year old me would be so ashamed. <laughs> um, and you know, I I do like I just I like the, the very procedural scenes where he's doing journalism. I think that feels very realistic in a non glamorous way. And I like that Hume Cronin's character never had that real turnaround of like, you're the man, you know, it really did feel yeah. like kind of awkward right to the end. And I think it just all adds to this overall vibe of anxiety of the whole movie. You don't even have characters bonding in ways where we get any sort of real warmth because that would happen in a different movie. You would even have more of a connection between him and the Lee Carter character played by Paul Apprentice. You get a scene of them in a motel room, which is pretty icy, and then it cuts to her corpse. And it's just like, oh yeah. my god. Like it, The movie constantly throws you off. Even to the point, there was about two or three, I hesitate to say awkward cuts, but very noticeable cuts, where I was like, is this clunky filmmaking? Or is this there to try to throw me off a little bit and make me feel unsettled in the moment? I was never 100% sure, to be honest. Yeah. Well, the Prentice stuff sticks out to me as one of those things. Absolutely. I, I You feel like there must have been a scene where she gets killed or something like cutting straight to her just dead on the table and he's standing there eating a sandwich basically watching her being dead you just think like am i missing something here 
Well, like, that one is like a smash cut for effect, but there's like, I remember there was one scene where it shows a character walking out in the foreground, and then there's a very visible cut, and then it shows, in the same shot, basically, Warren Beatty coming around a corner, and you go, were they trying to piece together two bits into one shot, awkwardly, or were they essentially making that cut kind of obvious to throw you off and make you feel just sort of awkward watching the movie? I would assume it's the latter, because that's what it achieved for me. It's too perfect in so many ways from a filmmaking standpoint throughout that it's hard to think that they would let that pass if it was awkward. You know, you have Gordon Willis shooting this movie. He did the Godfather series. I mean, this guy Mm. knows how to shoot a movie and make it look absolutely incredible. So, so much of the visual um, style of this movie is so impressive. It just sucks you in that I have a hard time believing those cuts weren't intentional. I do think they were probably part of the picture. Well, maybe it was a case of, like you said, where the script was evolving on the set that they shot sequences that ended up weren't being used and they would just cut bits out to fit in the narrative that they decided on later. Well, they want to keep the viewer on the edge of their toes throughout, right? And so moments like that, I mean, jump cuts are there to make you kind of sit upright. So, hmm. um, It's a very disorienting picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, it's also very you know, cold. You know, it's not, it's not full of... It doesn't necessarily mourn its victims. No. You know, it expresses, you know, expresses shock and, you know, displeasure that people are being killed, but it's not, it's not a melodrama in any way, shape, or form, even compared to something like, you know, Three Days in the Condor. Yeah. So the opening kill got a laugh out of me just because I really want to go to Seattle, and that's not how I want to see the Space Needle. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> yeah, and like that assassination sequence also in a different movie. Like we've all seen movies where there's assassinations, and they're you know kind of over the top or they're very dramatic. That one is just so matter of fact, followed by this almost like pitiful scamper and then roll off in a way that does not give you any sort of action movie satisfaction. It's all about just kind of observing it and not getting like an emotional response other than just like, huh, wow. It's almost clumsy. Yeah, intentionally so. And it really drew me in. It feels realistic in a way that a lot of movies aspire to. Yeah, human. And the final assassination, you know, the the senator of the golf cart is very detached and and almost comic in its, its, you know, in its indifference shall i say because uh, you know you get shot and the golf cart just sort of there it's still there the camera stays on it for a while you know to the point of you know discomfort and awkwardness and, and as you would say you know correctly you know, cringe comedy and then the movie gets back into you know, its actual story but it really lingers on the absurdity of its final murder um again there's nothing glamorous about the action there's nothing terribly cinematic about the action. But that also sets it apart. And, you know, the one, the one ex- modern example that always comes to mind is the murder of uh, Tom Wilkinson in uh, uh, Michael Clayton yeah. in 2007, which is, you know, basically the two or three bad guys who break into his home and very clinically inject him with something nasty, and it's just like fixing a water heater. What I really enjoyed, too, about that final sequence, and that is just an unbelievable stretch of film there, where you just have, you know, Beatty and a couple other guys up in the rafters staring down at this rehearsal for um, a politician. And just how much the colors pop in that sequence from down below with all the setting up. But the fact that, like, Warren Beatty's character, in a typical movie, you're following that character. You are there with him 
going through some sort of procedure to pay off this sequence. And he really does nothing. He just observes everything. Yeah. And that's sort of the takeaway is the murder still takes place. It's very, you know, stripped down and mundane. You've got this politician just demonstrating his golf swing. He's not, it's not a big flashy special moment. There's not crowds cheering during the sequence. And his character just watches. There's no tackling the, uh, you know, the gunman. It felt a little bit in some ways, it, it reminded me of the um, Ilsa Faust sequence in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, where she is the assassination in like the opera hall. Yeah. But that's obviously the action movie version, but it had a similar sense of paranoia going about it. It's actually funny you mentioned Star Trek VI earlier. That's, uh, it's got a little bit of that going on too. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the little bit of tension at the end there. But uh, fortunately, Kirk saves the day in that film. There is no way William Shatner would ever, ever allow himself to be filmed standing by and letting something like that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Even now at 90 years old. <laughs> I, I, if I was going to go uh, that way, I, I would be quite happy, I think, just to give someone a laugh. If someone shot me whilst I'm on a little golf cart thing and then just slowly, <laughs> slowly plowing into tables. If someone gets to giggle at that, I'm I'm probably going happy, I think. That may be the best motorized cart moment in a spy movie, beating the um, Austin Powers in the one stuck in the hallway. Like, there was something about this sequence slowly rolling towards the chairs there and just kept on going that just made me laugh. And it's like, you could tell that Pacula knew it was funny. Oh, yeah. It's, it's willfully absurd. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so absurd. And it's also pitiful. Like, it just feels... Yeah. Everything about it feels small in a way that is just so incredible. I think the film overall makes a point to make all of its machinations feel small and non-spectacular and non-you know, just run-of-the-mill. Because, you know, a conspiracy that attracts attention isn't a very useful conspiracy. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, it's sort of just blending into the background, hoping not to attract attention. Well, I was just going to say my my other like that we hadn't mentioned already was something that Cam sort of breezed upon, which is the absurdist nature of some of the stuff in this film. Like that scene is one of them. One of the things that made me laugh was the sheriff and the deputy <laughs> at, at the uh, the fishing camp, where a very odd scene in a bar where the the deputy knows that Warren Beatty is a man, but pretends that he's a woman for a second because he has long hair. Now, I have no hair, but I used to have long hair. So I took offense to that scene <laughs> because uh, I'm a man. But, um, yeah, and then Warren Beatty proceeds to beat the, the living crap out of this deputy, to which he then pulls up to this guy and says, I think I should call the police. And then the other guy goes, well, luckily, I'm the sheriff. Um, and it, you just sit there and kind of laugh at the absurd just moment that's been created in this film. But this film is, is filled with those sorts of moments. And that is totally a, you know, um, counterculture guy facing off against someone who's very conservative, right? And that's a 1970s mm. context. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I did appreciate that that fistfight, though, was Warren Beatty versus the neighbor from Home Improvement. That was uh, pretty amazing <laughs> unto itself. So I appreciated that. But, yeah, it's like this guy does not blend in and what, whatever the heck the name of that place was. Like, uh, I, I can't remember. It had a fish name. Salmon Tail. There it is. Which is funny because mm. here in, um, I live in, uh, you know, British Columbia, Canada, and we have a place called Salmon Arm. So I wonder if Salmon Tail was uh, somehow inspired. I don't know if Salmon Tail is a real place. Maybe it isn't. What do I know? Pop down, see if you can find the sheriff. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. What did you guys think of the scene where we go through the training, though? Because I thought that was the standout of the entire movie. The uh, montage there 
where it's basically the brainwashing sequence. And I mean, we've seen many brainwashing sequences in movies, but like this one almost feels like a small film unto itself. Like I just thought it was unbelievably well edited and I appreciated seeing Thor pop up. That was kind of fun, but just so effective and just worming its way into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those weird things like this film does it, especially like with the golf cart scene at the end as well, where it just keeps going to get, it goes past the point where it's weird and it becomes either funny or serious. And then this time by the end, it's quite serious and it's quite shocking. Some of the images it's throwing at you because at the beginning it's all sunshine and rainbows. And what's that tagline from the film? Uh, as American as apple pie. Yeah. At the beginning of that. And by the end, it's, you know, maggots on a corpse. <laughs> So you turn a human into a bulldog. Sorry, vague reference. <laughs> Certainly flew over my head there, Scott. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> Never mind. I'm not even going to explain it because I would have the fuck. I'll just keep making salmon arm references. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, there, that, that scene and the golf cart scene, it's very humorous in a... The, you know, the, the, that gag in The Simpsons with, where the sideshow Bob keeps stepping on the rakes. <laughs> which is a classic bit in, I think, season two or three-ish. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, it, it just goes on and on and on and on to where its length is the joke. And I think the film, that that's a way that sort of the film diffuses the glamour of some of these tropes. That, you know, again, the, you know, the name, the word of the day is mundane. Well, that's the thing I sort of surmise with this film. It's just very mundane and human. Which is maybe why some people found it just not as interesting. Because why do you want to watch something about the boring life you live? Sure. I mean, not that I'm running around shooting senators, but you get the idea. Well, Scott, you and I often have fights like in front of dams and roll down the river. That's a uh, an annual get together we have. <laughs> it's more sexy when we do it. Sure. To be fair. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But far more like the bar fight. When I fell off the space needle, it was exciting. <laughs> yeah. The one moment I kind of struggled with because i think a lot of the action throughout this movie is very human the sequence in the car though was a little more so hollywood like okay i like the car on the muddy road where he's trying to get away but then you have like the crazy jump that goes right through the front of the grocery store and i'm like yeah that felt more pumped up than a lot of the other action in the movie that would have landed him in jail regardless yeah i don't think he would have made it out of salmon tail quite frankly yeah i was waiting for jw pepper to turn up and make some sort of quip <laughs> <laughs> well i say boy no i absolutely agree with you on that that is a moment that where and that is sometimes the 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 when you're trying to tell a fantastical story in a real world venue sometimes the fantastical tropes conflict with the real world storytelling and you know now we you know that comes up we're talking about you know comic book movies that are trying to take place in the real world where you have stuff like where you have you know, the Nolan Batman films, especially the first two that are trying to be somewhat realistic, but you still have sequences that only make sense in comic book, you know, logic. And it's not a deal breaker, it just is what it is. Um, but yes, a scene like that is like, okay, in the real world, he would have been, you know, arrested, questioned. Yeah, there would be real ramifications for, you know, driving your car to a grocery store. That's a no-no. Also, like, one thing, you know, 1970s films, we've talked about how a lot of them have this sense of paranoia, but 
The 70s films also have a lot of car chases. You've got stuff like Vanishing Point. Later on, you've got the Smokey and the Bandit films and all the good old boy movies. Dukes of Hazard on TV. So, like, I can't help but wonder if, like, this car stunt is a little bit of that sort of background and that audiences had a certain expectation of crazy car stunts in movies. Well, uh, yes. A, I agree with you. That probably was the case. And B, to a certain extent, that may have been the only kind of over-the-top action that could be narratively justified in this film, since he's not an expert martial artist. He's not, you know, a wizard in shootouts. You know, so he can't necessarily participate in that kind of action. But you know, he can get into a car accident. I think we were robbed of Warren Beatty riding a bike furiously, just like Robert Redford in Three Days of the Condor. Mm, <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> what this film truly... We need Warren Beatty going out for lunch. <laughs> Beatty would have beaten Redford to the punch by one year had he done a uh, bicycle stunt. That's true. Uh, That's true. Well, it's because this film underwhelmed financially that, of course, you had Redford riding a bicycle the next one. Of course, yeah. It's nice that we've covered uh, Three Days of Condor, so I can make that joke. Otherwise, I would have never seen it. But um, <laughs> the other thing I think I was maybe unsatisfied was the the ending. Probably because I wanted something a bit flashier. But just having my, my main character just offed. And then it's just, you know, Coda, you're out. A cool one hour, 40 minutes, one hour, 45. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose I never really had his story wrapped up in the, apart from the fact that he died. So the conspiracy continues and nothing happened. Nothing changed. Not very satisfying. Maybe it's not supposed to be. Maybe I just want a happy ending. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that hopelessness to a lot of these 70s films, these 70s paranoid thrillers. And that's why I was curious if it is a little bit of a regional thing. I mean, I'm in Canada, but I live very close to the U.S. And I've kind of soaked up a lot of that 1970s culture um, going on with, you know, obviously we've talked about JFK, but the RFK assassination and all these various elements that sort of contributed to this sort of national mood in the U.S. But does it feel sort of distant and very like alien to you, you know, being from the U.K.? Uh, I, I, only in the sense that that's not what we were doing at this point. But then we were making films like One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. So <laughs> who are we to talk about films in the 70s? Like, we have no leg to stand on, dinosaur or otherwise. <laughs> you have a good point there. <laughs> Starring Michael Caine just because... Well, I, I, no, my, Michael Caine would not star in one of our dinosaurs is missing. And, and I think I'd stop making this podcast if that's what actually had happened with history. But um, no, I, I, I don't know my history that well, I have to say. Like, I, I know a little bit about JFK. I know he was assassinated. The name Lee Harvey Oswald pops into my brain when I think about it. But I, I don't know anything particularly about Watergate or... Yeah. Or, or is it, do you say RFK? I'm assuming that's his son or brother? Or... Brother. Sure. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, like, I get it, like, because it does feel very specific to a time and place that maybe when you jump to the other, you know, whether it's the UK or if we were to go to Australia or places like that, they would look at a movie like this and not have sort of the context that I feel, even though I'm born in 1980, I had a real sense of this sort of vibe just watching the movies of the 70s. And, you know, it, it, it certainly plays differently to an American audience for a story like this to, you know, it's tragic gee, I hope that's not really how it is, blah, blah, blah. Well, I imagine if you're in a foreign country, you're just like, of course, <laughs> those Americans. <laughs> Look at that cowboy getting shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, what exactly. Like, eh, whatever. What? Americans have a corrupt political system? No. <laughs> 
Well, from a from a political side, Scott, I'll, I'll ask the question. You know, are you rooting for Warren Beatty's character to uh, you know unravel the truth? Is there this sort of deep wanting to get the truth out there inside of you? Is that is that something you relate to in the film? Well, I think so. Yes, because there's no upside to his failure. You know, it's not like these these you know villains are you know they don't even have a sympathetic motive. They're just mm. you know it's power for the sake of power. So there's really no, you know, it's not even, you know, we've seen the trope in the last several years of Hollywood films where, you know, they're a villain, but they have interesting motivations. Um, here it's just, you know, they're corrupt rich assholes. Yeah, and we know nothing about them. Yeah, there's no upside to him losing. And there's, yeah, like, I like that there was no face on the villainy here. There was no yep. grand design they had. We don't even know what their big ultimate end goal is. It's all kind of irrelevant. And the only character you really have to speak to it is this character, Jack Younger, played by Walter McGinn, who is sort of the handler. But even he is, I like that they cast an actor who comes across on screen as kind of milk toast. He doesn't have a lot of big personality. He's just a, you know, a guy who's going to basically get everything in order and step back. So the movie is kind of throwing up a wall even for the audience to connect with what the conspiracy even could be. Yeah. Well, what about you, Scott? Is there any anything that jumped out to you as, as a quibble or something you didn't like about the film that you haven't mentioned already? Well, I don't want to say it's a perfect picture, but I think, you know, I've seen it three times in my lifetime, once many, many years ago, once several months ago, and once earlier this week for this podcast. And mm -hmm. in terms of what it's trying to do, no, I mean, I really have, I find no real, other than the, the car thing, which even my kid was like, yeah, you wouldn't have trouble for that. Um, other than that, I think it plays by its own rules. It respects its own storytelling. Uh, it works as a character piece and a, you know, a very small scale action thriller. And I, you know, not to say the same thing that I said a few times here, but, you know, the reason why I like it, you know, it feels to me like a definitive you know, a def you know, the definitive Hollywood paranoia conspiracy thriller in terms of who the hero is, who the bad guys are, and how it all plays out, both in terms of plot and in terms of cinematics. But again, you know, if, if, the, if the conspiracy was real, this is probably how it would have played out. Very mundane, very, you know, off the cuff, very, you know, nine to five day job. You know, you're not, you're not going to have, you know, Clive Owen is this flashy assassin running around, you know, doing bad stuff for Queen and Country. But that's so much cooler. That is cooler. I, I thought the theme, though, of, like, weaponizing the antisocial in society was actually very timely. Like, that's something we yeah. talk so much oh, now absolutely. about. Yeah, the danger posed by people who don't have these, you know, personal connections and can cause violence. And the idea that this organization would be weaponizing them, I thought... Boy, this movie would still it still strikes a chord. It's not something that you can just look at and say, "Yep, 1970s." It actually does still feel relevant. <laughs> um, no, and it, it makes sense that the, this organization would theoretically use, you know, hippies as their patsies. You know, kill several birds with one stone. Because mm -hmm. um, if you use somebody that seemed to be, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, then that puts some weird questions. Why does this, you know, lifelong Nixonite involved in this diabolical conspiracy? That doesn't make sense. Uh, so, yeah, I think in terms of what it wants to do, I think it 
it fires on all cylinders. I have no real qualms with it. Well, I, I was going to throw it to final thoughts before we get to the knock list, but there's a scene we haven't really tackled, and it's definitely my favorite scene in the film. And I've alluded to it already, which is the airplane. Yeah. Now, I will preface by saying I loved the security airports in, in the 70s. <laughs> um, I would love to be able to fly that way instead of four hours before turning up to the airport and having to wait in a airless room. But uh, yeah, just he just waltzes onto the plane, not even checking security. Just, just from the road, he walks into the plane and buys his ticket on the plane in cash. <laughs> like, what is this world? I want to live in it. Have you ever watched the airport movies, Scott? Been a while. But... I have not. I've been told to watch them. <laughs> they are uh, pretty crazy. I mean, the, they have a similar vibe as this, and uh, air travel is very different. So uh, well, there you have it. <laughs> but I, I thought that plane sequence was incredibly effective. It felt very like Hitchcockian with him mm-hmm. writing on the napkin, and you're waiting for the napkin, napkin to get pulled and for the message to come across that there's a bomb, just so tense. And that's something that, like, Pacula does really well here, is just establishing sequences where you're kind of just leaning forward to see how it's going to play out. And it doesn't treat you like a fool. He Before he writes on the napkin that there's a bomb on the plane, he goes into the bathroom and writes it on the window in soap, and then he leaves, and there's a guy waiting outside, so he, he can't, he has to go back in to wipe it off because he can't be seen to leave the note because then they'll arrest him for someone who's making a bomb threat or put the bomb on the plane as it turned out. And it doesn't, but it doesn't explain that. It doesn't give you like a voiceover going, oh no, I can't, I can't let him see it. Like, it's just, you figure it out in that scene that he can't let that happen. And and then he's smart enough to change his plan. And and then of course you get that, as you said, Cam, the Hitchcock moment, you know, suspense versus surprise, the, the bomb under the table, as you're slowly, slowly, slowly watching them get to that napkin. And then lo and behold, a very weird bomb scene happens about five minutes later. <laughs> I think the maybe the budget ran out for the explosion there. <laughs> That's fine. I was fine with it. I'm just going to shake the camera a little bit. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Boom. It worked. <laughs> yeah, I got it. But um, I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys. Any sort of final thoughts on the film before we before we wrap it up? Uh, Cam, any final notes? Um, I said there would be a Jaws, uh, the revenge connection. Um, I wanted to mm. give some props to the composer, Michael Small, who worked on this film. I thought, you know, the score is minimalist. A lot of it is silence, but when it does kick in, it's really effective and ominous. And he did movies like The Postman Always Rings Twice, the remake version with Jack Nicholson. He did Marathon Man, which we've referenced throughout this podcast. And in 1987, near the end of his career, he did Jaws the Revenge. I mean, does that have a score that's memorable? Uh, I've never seen Jaws 4. Well, a lot of it is just repurposed John Williams cues. So um, I guess you got that going for it. I, uh, yeah, I, I wish there was a more interesting thing. Although we did just try and tie Michael Caine to this film a little bit, so at least yeah, there's two Michael Caine references now, I suppose. Yeah, there we go. Um, well, one other little thing I'll mention is I enjoyed during the entire rehearsal at the end how much they focused on the tuba player, and that I was convinced he was going to play some sort of part in. Like I didn't know who this guy was and why I should focus, but I liked that the movie was throwing me off and making me stare at this tuba player and wonder if he was going to, I don't know, cue an assassination when he hit a perfect note or something, like uh, the man who um, knew too much or something. It's very Our Man Flint, like he blows it and a rocket comes out at the end or something. (laughs) (laughs) Blows up the senator. Eagle Eye has a gimmick like that. (laughs) You know, at the end, when they hit a note, there's going to be a bomb, but Shia LaBeouf was able to stop it. Is that a film? Eagle Eye? Yeah. For one brief moment, it was. 
Yeah. Still. Back when star-driven vehicles still had a shot now in Hollywood. <laughs> mm, films, even no films like that were cheap enough to actually be about something. And we say that as The Last Duel has opened in theaters and made mere dollars, sadly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I actually don't have any final sort of notes hanging around. Scott, do you have anything? Not particularly. I think we've covered all the bases on this one. Yeah, I think so. Um, in that case, I think it's time to answer the ultimate question of this podcast, and that is the knock list. And as we have a guest, Cam, can you explain what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is the tortured acronym we use for the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every episode at the end of the review, we vote for whether the movie belongs in what we consider sort of the pantheon of must-see spy movies. So movies that have made it on Three Days of the Condor, Dr. No and From Russia with Love and Goldfinger, um, bit of an odd pick, we put um, Hannah starring Shersha Ronan, True Lies made it on. So that's sort of the gist of what the knock list is. It's it's we like to um, not have it just be the hardcore established classics. We like it to be inviting for people, but also if you give them the list, they're going to watch the movie and go, "I at least got something out of that." That, that sounds like the bottom of the barrel there, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. They at least got something. Oh, that, I think we're aiming a little higher than their cap. Well, but, something uh... valuable. They, there's value okay. to the list. Yes, I got pure hatred out of that film. <laughs> <laughs> well, Taken Two didn't make the list. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Scott, you get the first vote, so what do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's you know, even if it's merely surface-level entertainment for you and yours, it is one of the definitive 1970s political-slash-paranoia-slash-conspiracy films. And I think it's essential in terms of the time and place in which it was made, and in terms of a specific genre, uh, both because it's good and because of what it represents, and in terms of how it's made. Again, it's a more grounded, realistic, clinical, button-down version of this kind of thriller that was very prevalent in the 1970s. Um, and from my mind, growing up and, and onward, it is one of the films that comes to mind when you think of 1970s conspiracy films. Okay, we have a yes. Uh, this is a three-way vote this week. Cam, you're up. I'm a yes as well. Um, I think... It's not as um, easily accessible as Three Days of the Condor, which I think most people could tune into and really love. But I think it's a really important movie to sort of understand the 1970s conspiracy thrillers. Um, just the espionage vibe of this one, I think, really sucks you in if you're in the, the right wavelength. And we've talked about a few movies like that, Scott, where they're spy films that are... I think really important to watch, but maybe require a certain mindset to sit down and watch. Like The Day of the Jackal, for example, mm. is not a movie you just throw in on Friday night with your friends. It's a movie you got to be in the right you know, mood for. And I feel the same way about the Parallax view, but it's sort of a foundational text, I think, for a lot of the conspiracy thrillers that went forward and one that holds up just really beautifully now. Okay, so we've reached that point where there's two yeses, and so <laughs> my vote is completely null and void. And so I'm going to go with my gut on this one and go no. Okay. Um, I gave this. <laughs> I I gave this two chances, and either time I just it just didn't work for me. Um, I think it's almost too far away from a spy film to be on the knock list for me. Um, I get it though. It is a great film in its way. And I think there is time. I think there is a mood you could be in for me to enjoy it. But I, I, I like my popcorn actiony films that I'd watch at the cinema. This does not feel like the one I'd want to go and see, personally. Uh, that's just me. But you know, 
I, I'm glad I'm going with my gut because it's still going to make the knock list anyway. Was it a movie that when you finished watching it, that you walked away going, well, that was interesting. Even if you didn't necessarily think it was great, you were like, that's an interesting movie I wouldn't have come across you know, in a different way. Yeah, I, that's completely it. I think that's a very good way of looking at it because you know you, the cinematography we barely scratched the surface on this one, but like there's some fantastic shots in this film uh, from angles I've never thought that I'd seen in films before. Like, there's some great stuff uh, that was interesting. You know, the brainwashing sequence was interesting. Um, the the conspiracy and not knowing who to trust is an interesting t- you know way of doing things and not something I've really experienced in films before. It just wasn't on my wavelength for the last couple of days when I've watched it. And was it the, how big a contributing factor was just the Warren Beatty character? Because he is the one tying it together. And that is something even reviews at the time noted was they did not connect with that character. I mean, I think it has like a, something like a 68 or something on Metacritic, which is surprisingly low when you consider maybe how much weight the name of the movie carries now. Um, I, I think I struggle to attach myself to Warren Beatty. I had never seen any of his films. This is my first experience seeing anything he's ever done. Um, I, I, maybe that's a good thing. I, maybe there's better films he's done out there. I don't know. But um, yeah, he, he is aloof. I think Cam said the word aloof earlier. And he really, the whole the film holds you at arm's length. And he and his character does too. And so I never really attached myself. So by the time he's gunned down in the second to final scene, I'm like, okay. Yeah. That was two hours gone. <laughs> which makes me really glum on the film i I think there's great bits to it and you know but i just for me i think it's too too far divorced from a spy film to make the knock list but hey ho it's making it anyway and no one cares what i think (laughs) sure um well there you go folks that's two yeses and a no and as such (sighs) the parallax view (laughs) is making the knock list uh you can celebrate scott you could take over if you like you sound like you're a better judge of films than i am so you, you can just be agent scott from now on i'll just uh i'll just disappear into obscurity somewhere <laughs> yeah you, you both like cam went to journalism school he was a journalist at one point yeah you, you're a professional journalist scott so i think there's a better meeting of the minds from the two of you i'm just gonna leave stage left i'll be off run to the light scott run to the light (laughs) (laughs) oh no what's that gun Uh, what are some uh, films that have not made the knock list that are notable if i may uh hmm born Um, identity ones that were like that was one yep uh Uh, men in black one didn't make it um it's a good film but it's just not it just wasn't a spy film to me uh born ultimatum didn't that was actually a divide we had two guests on that one and it was a real split vote but it was decided that that one didn't um there's a lot of movies haven't now i'm just like racking my brain um, there's like some of the brosnan bonds didn't make it yeah gold golden i did but the rest of them didn't whereas you could make a good argument for tomorrow never dies maybe um there's a bunch of like you know now i'm struggling to think off the top of my head but we've done like 70 80 films at this point now so it's is it a matter of just including one of every big franchise but not trying try to spread the culture more mm. like you know maybe born supremacy for the born series but everything else not at all. that was the case with uh, born it wasn't by design though um because yeah. i can say none of the taken movies made it on um interesting so, you know we're going to be tackling triple x fairly soon uh we'll see but um yeah, it's not really driven by that. It's more, I guess... I think it's like, it, it brings something different to the table. Like, Ultimatum felt like a retread of Supremacy and not a better retread. 
oh god, it really. That's why I don't like it. I watch Supremacy. You know, I watched the first two Borns, and then the next, you know, day one, day two, and then I went to see Born Ultimatum on opening night. Mm. I just saw this guy last night. Yeah, this is because of that sap walker in here. Oh, no, I'm in the I'm in the minority on that one. I don't like Ultimatum at all. Yeah, I think it's an okay film. I just think this doesn't need anything original. Yeah. So why would I give it a, access to the Noculus, I guess? Yeah. It's good to know that a professional agrees with me on that one, Dan. I, I, I like that. You do, you do combine over that one. <laughs> well, you know, Scott, I, I, um, that about wraps us up. So I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Oh, you're very welcome. This was fun. Had a very good time. Um, where can people find more from you, read your, read your work? Uh, Forbes.com. You can Google some variation of Scott Mendelson, the ticket booth, Forbes. That will see me pop up pretty quickly. Uh, I have a Twitter feed if you want to see me get yelled at by movie nerds that think that I hate their favorite franchise. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at Scott Mendelson. Yep. Um, yeah, that's most. I mean, I have a Facebook page. That's mostly for family photos and stuff. So if you want to look there? I'm not going to stop you. So everyone go to Facebook. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like all the cat photos. Well, that, that that's important. We've seen the cat. You know, people won't see the video of this, but we've seen your 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 cat today. So that's uh, as, as added to the the podcast. But um, it's actually you know, never what... happened when I'm doing one of these. Did you say it was a new cat? Yeah, well, it was. We had we had three older cats that all died this year. One in like mm. one in like April, one in I think Labor Day, and then one like a week and a half later. And the surviving cat, we had a 21 year old, and then two 16 year olds. We had got, went to the shelter and got two really old cats to keep the other one company. Mm-hmm. She then died 72 hours later. So now we're stuck, not really that great, with these two old cats that are just sort of like, eh, we'll show up if we feel like it. And it's, it's amusing. Uh, the 18-year-old seems to like me. <laughs> I said, much like this film, they're keeping you at arm's length. Oh, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but uh, we'll, have a, we'll have notes in the show notes to links to all your accounts and everything so people can find you there as well. Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, we want to again thank Scott Mendelson for taking the time out to talk to us today about the Parallax view. Uh, of course, it did make the knock list despite my protestations. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, you said you like your blockbusters, and we're going to give you one. 2002's Triple X, starring Vin Diesel. Yes. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that soundtrack. It was one of my favorite soundtracks to listen to back in 2002. That's right. Our Lady Peace, Gravity, all over those trailers. Ramstein, all the way. Mm-hmm. And we have an interview with the man who wrote the film, Mr. Rich Wilkes, who gave us a ton of information on how this film came to be. So check both those episodes coming next week. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Triple X and join us next week. And be careful how you search that one on Google. Um, <laughs> I've made that mistake. Um, we are, of course, a proud member of Podbreed and Quite the Thing Media Podcast Networks, and you can find out more about them on their websites. Don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, welcome to the testing room of the Parallax Corporation's Division of Human Engineering. <laughs>